Hello, good afternoon, America. How is your daughter? Your German is good. Anyway, let's listen to Ben Chu humiliating Amber Turds. Welcome back to Christopher Gabonetti's show. By the way, shout out to KAMP Student Radio at the University of Arizona and. KPYT Pasquayaki Tribal Radio on how he reacted to things that happened in his relationship with Ms. Herc. On how he reacted to things that happened in his relationship with Ms. Herc. Ben Chu's words have been trending on social media among Johnny's stance because it explains why it was easy for them and Johnny to be the Amber Heard and her team in the Virginia trial. In the clip of the recent Zoom interview with the president of the Beverly Hills Bar Association, Anthony Ross then agrees that being in a courtroom is just like putting on a show. And it depends on how well the show is presented and how well you place your cards for you to win. This is total humiliation for Amber Heard because unlike the other people in the courthouse, we can all see that she was acting. That she was putting on a show and lying and it didn't go well for her. Amber is an actress and she should have been able to put on a show that could have sold her narrative positively, but instead she was exposed by a bunch of lawyers who were also putting on a show themselves. We thought that we needed to not so much entertain the jury, but to tell them a compelling story. So we gave a lot of thought. Ben continued explaining that their main tactic was to give a compelling story, Johnny's story, according to them. They wanted the jury to know of Johnny's upbringing and what he went through growing up, which would make the jury understand him more. Johnny talking about how his mother was abusive and mean towards him as a child gave the jury a clear understanding of why Johnny tolerated Amber even when she was throwing tantrums and throwing pots and screaming at him. The jury realized that Johnny thought he was the problem in that relationship, and that's why he kept apologizing because it's something he has been doing from childhood. Having to apologize to his mother, his sister also gave us the backstory of how Johnny used to hide from his mother and this is also something he did with Amber when she started getting loud and physical. Johnny would split and hide. You run away every single fight. want to make it easy on you, so you split. You don't fight. From Johnny's background story, it was easy to see why he had substance abuse problems. He himself explained that he used to get them for his mother and soon he started being a user himself. It was easy to understand him because of his compelling backstory, which is something Amber didn't have. Mostly because she would have most probably lied. Here Amber tells of how her parents worked hard to make sure that she went to prestigious private schools. My parents saw my education as my priority and they so that I could go to this, these private schools. And I always found a way to kind of rebel, and not until recently as an adult I've realized what they were giving me. But here she claims she was a scholarship kid. You only just realized it recently, didn't you? Because you dropped out of high school at 17. Um, you know, my, I was always a scholarship kid. My, um, I worked really hard to, to be able to go to the schools that I went to. Okay, okay. It's really humiliating that she could even lie about something as mundane as schooling, but I guess it's also why she didn't have a solid and story to tell the jury. They would have realized way earlier that she was a liar. In the interview, I think Ben might not have noticed it. But he was silently digging and humiliating Amber and her team. He said that he and his team did serious research on the evidence they presented before they presented it. Something Amber and her team did not. There was an instance during trial when Amber's lawyer Elaine said Amber used a Milani cosmetic color corrector kit for her bruises while she lived with Johnny but it was later revealed as a lie. Instead of doing thorough research before they swore on the Milani makeup, 
They humiliated themselves when it came to light that the corrector was made after Johnny and Amber split. There's also that other time when Amber's team told one of their witnesses that Johnny had vomited on his lap and continued sleeping. This turned out to be all wrong and it was humiliating to see him being corrected by Johnny's team that it was not vomit but rather ice cream. It was really humane how the relationship between Johnny and his team was to the point where Ben Chu was moved to tears and we could all see the team comforting each other. A fan tweeted, To believe Amber Heard you'd have to believe Ben Chu, a respected, world-renowned attorney, intimately familiar with every detail of this case, was literally brought to tears of relief over a lying white beater getting away with it. The amount of respect Johnny's lawyers have garnered for themselves for being humble and competent is amazing. A fan who watched their interview tweeted, This is fantastic. Camille Vasquez, Ben Chu not only highly professional in their field, their humility shone through. Many attorneys could learn a lot from them. And that's it for this video. Have a great day, everyone. Pretty cool. It's paradigm shifting. All the problems on this planet. All the problems on this planet can be solved by one biologist, an Australian biologist. Espionage top legal experts react to chart for espionage pleading fit New York prosecutions and more legal AF stream tens again ten days ago. That's kind of long time ago, but maybe a search warrant at Mar-a-Lago. Top secret documents and sensitive compartmented information. Nuclear secrets and yes. Donald Trump is being criminally investigated for violations of the Espionage Act. What have we learned and what will happen next? Fifth, 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 440 times Donald Trump pleads Frequency of chaos. at his deposition in New York in connection with New York Attorney General Tish James' civil investigation into the Trump Organization's fraudulent valuation schemes and Trump's appraisers at Cushman and Wakefield in that same investigation turn over 35,000 documents to Tish James related to the Trump Organization after they were held in contempt of court just like Donald Trump. And let's not forget there is a criminal process Execution taking place right now in the Manhattan DA's office in New York into the Trump Organization and Alan Weisselberg, who are criminal defendants. That's set for trial October 24th, and Alan Weisselberg's motion to dismiss to try to get rid of these criminal charges was denied this past week. And then we turn to Pennsylvania, where radical extremist Republican Scott Perry was served with a search warrant for his cell phone in connection with January 6th and his schemes to overthrow our democracy leading up to that by the DOJ and the fake Republican Pennsylvania electors were subpoenaed by the DOJ. The most consequential legal news. This is Legal AF. Ben Mycel is joined by Michael Popak back from his summer vacation. And Michael, I'm wearing this workout towel right now for those listening, for those watching, you see it because while I'm sweating with all this legal news taking place, it's a little bit of a workout just reading that introduction. How you doing, Michael Popak? I'm doing great. And when you see Michael Popak back behind the microphone with Ben Mycelis and I'm wearing a check shirt, you know what? Ask me what that check shirt means. What is that check shirt, Michael Popak? Checkmate? Summer's checkmate, summer over for Donald Trump. First time in 230 years a president is the subject of a criminal 
prosecution for violation of the law. We can finally say it. You and I and others have said, give Merrick Garland time. And it may not be the prosecution that people want at the moment, but it is a prosecution criminally. And we'll talk about, and if successful on one of the three statutes, it's an automatic bar to future office. We'll talk about that next. Look, we've never been Merrick Garland apologists because there's nothing to apologize for. We've always explained to our viewers that this is the way our justice system works. And to date, there's been over 800 criminal charges alone in connection with the insurrection, uh, with over 400 convictions and 400 more who are going to be convicted, who are moving through the queue. And at the same time, we've always talked about that grand jury relating to January 6th that's been impaneled, that is clearly investigating Donald Trump's conduct in relation to January 6th. But as we focused, Popak, on the January 6th committee, when we focused on Trump's criminality related to the the election, sometimes we need to take a step back and also realize what was fundamentally some of the reasons that Donald Trump was not going to leave the White House unless he was literally dragged from the White House. And number one, it is the fact that he is a ridiculous, narcissist, dictator, wannabe. That is one of the reasons that he that's mentally how he's programmed. But also he engaged in so many criminal conducts while he was the president of the United States, he engaged in so many bad acts, selling our country away bit by bit to foreign actors, so severely compromising our national security interests that he knew that the chickens were gonna come home to roost when he was kicked out of office and didn't have those presidential protections. And that is what this search warrant is also all about because of Trump's bizarre, dangerous, red flag, high red alert relationships with our enemies, shunning our allies, secret backroom meetings with Putin and Saudi Arabia and people like that when Donald Trump was president of the United States. But this search warrant was executed earlier this week on Monday, we got news. We got news that it was a few dozen FBI um, agents showed up very respectfully and to Trump's lawyer, uh, a search warrant. The search warrant was, uh, was issued the previous Friday by a federal magistrate judge out of the Southern District. Um, these federal agents who arrived at Mar-a-Lago in Florida knew very specifically where to search. Attachment A of the warrant had the very specific locations. They knew where the boxes were going to be. They searched we, it. We'll talk about why they knew that. We now have a copy of the return. So when people think about what a warrant is, there's three documents that constitute the warrant. There's the affidavit, there's the warrant, and the warrant will list where what's being searched and the crimes being investigated. And we know the crimes being investigated now. And then there is a return, all handed to Trump's lawyers. Trump was able to watch actually the search through the surveillance cameras while he was in New York, and that according to his lawyer. They lied from the outset about everything being planted and that defund the FBI, and they, they did fake pictures of the federal magistrate judge next to Elaine Maxwell that they, that they blasted on Fox News. They doxed FBI officers. Really heinous conduct. But it went from that they planted 
that the FBI planted these records to Trump. This is Trump's newest BS, which doesn't even matter when we'll talk about that, why, what these crimes are. Uh, uh, that he declassified, uh, well, Obama, Obama Clinton, yeah, yeah. but that he claims that he declassified <laughs> all sure. of the records, that he had a standing order. And the standing order was that once you left the White House with documents, it automatically became declassified. So it went from the FBI planted documents to they planted documents that Trump declassified. It literally makes no sense because there is no bottom. In the Republican right-wing extremist echo chamber, it was dizzying to try to come up with what lie they were saying, who they were attacking. It's really absurd. But Joe Lockhart, the press secretary for Bill Clinton, really said it best, which he goes, if you think the Republicans are going to be embarrassed for what occurred over the last 48 hours, you've missed the whole plot line over the past few years. There is no bottom to these radical extremists. We are legal AF. They are lawless, criminal cartel masquerading AF. as a political party AF. Michael Popak, bring us through yeah. some of the uh, behind the scenes of what was going on in the search warrant. Then let's talk about the crimes being investigated. Visit Sweetwater.com for the widest selection of music gear at the best prices. Experience our award-winning customer service and see how we make buying music gear online easy and hassle-free. Sweetwater.com, the best place. As, as you know, as you and I go back and forth, I've been chomping at the bit to talk about this. I've been traveling. I haven't been able to get on the microphone with you guys, but, but let's go. We've known from the, almost the very beginning because the National Archive disclosed months ago that Trump took 15 boxes. We'll talk about the categories and the classifications of the things that were on the search warrant receipt so that we now know in detail what was taken. But we always knew there were 15 boxes sitting at Mar-a-Lago that were not properly cataloged. Presidential Records Act is pretty beautiful in its simplicity. Every document that is either generated or read or deposited with the president or anybody related to the president is automatically not the personal possession of that person, but a presidential record. And on the way out, you leave behind everything and you take nothing. You don't ask for permission. Oh, is this classified? Is this not classified? I'd like to keep this memo as a memento because we're going to talk about why under one of the statutes, particularly or two of the statutes, whether the document is classified or not is irrelevant. It's not relevant. And he hasn't been really charged with this statute like David, General David Petraeus, who was charged with a confidential document retention or disclosure violation. Sam Berger, the former national security advisor for Clinton, the same statute. That statute's not in play. The three statutes that are in play have nothing to do with whether it's classified or declassified. We'll get into the nitty gritty of that. But, so that's what's supposed to happen. And that's what Obama did. Every scrap of paper in the Obama administration was left behind, cataloged properly, and stored by the, in the appropriate place by the National Archive, including, just the first another bubble for those that troll us, 30 million pages of documents that the National Archive reviewed carefully and then sent to the, the National Records uh, facility in Chicago, 
for it to eventually be delivered into the Obama Library, Presidential Library, which, as most people should know, if they haven't visited presidential libraries, are not just places where mannequins move around like they're the president, and they show you, like, oh, this was the suit that this person wore on this day, or this was the penny used to sign a treaty. It's also scholars use the presidential library because it's a repository of declassified, properly cataloged material. That's what's with Obama, or what, what went with, not even with Obama, for his for his presidential library. This is a horse of a different color. This is Trump on the way out, took 15 boxes with him, including documents we now know compromised the, the comprised the highest level of top secret uh, classification that, that there is, the, the top level. There's 11 classes of documents on the receipt for the executed search warrant. Four of them are top secret or above, and there is an above, which we'll talk about. Three of them, three of those categories were just secret. And things in those boxes included dossiers and information related to Macron, the French prime minister, about Roger Stone. And here's the issue. It's not just taking it out of the White House. That's bad enough. But where did he store it? He had it in a relatively unsecured basement or other areas of a of a resort in Florida. A resort that in 2019 alone had a Chinese national spy wander their way through you know, Mar-a-Lago, taking photos and getting into... So all our Chinese spies, Russian spies, or other people that want to hurt us have to, have to know is, and I'm sure they did know because it was in the press, that there were 15 boxes of potentially top secret documents sitting in a basement. That's all they needed. That's all they needed. And then let them figure out who they have to portray a plumber or a pool boy to go get those boxes. And this hasn't been really overly reported either, Ben. The reporting that I've seen, and I'm going to talk about it more on Wednesday with Karen, is that part of what was in the boxes is what the, um, the spook community, the CIA, the spy community calls signal information. Ben, you know what signal information is? I didn't. Tell me what signal information is, Michael Popak. Think about this. They were used the words, the, the intelligence community uses signal information to mean information that they've obtained from wiretapping, eavesdropping on foreign leaders. Yes, our government eavesdrops, wiretaps foreign leaders, including allies. And that is called signal information. And there is a belief that there's signal information sitting within the boxes of material that Trump took with him. So for any Republican that's a patriot, that is defending the president before even knowing what the charges were against them, because a lot of them defended him before the search warrant was unsealed and the statutes were even listed, and they all jumped up and down about, he declassified everything. He can't. It doesn't stop him from being prosecuted for the statutes that they artfully chose to investigate him under. Let's talk about those statutes, Popeye. Yeah, they go. are 18 U.S.C. 2071, concealment, removal, mutilation. That's 18 U.S.C. 793, the Espionage Act, gathering, transmitting, or losing the information, defense information. And then 18 U.S.C. 1519, destruction, alteration, and falsification of records. And just going back to the Espionage Act, 18 U.S.C. 793, that's actually what Snowden, 
um, was charged with as well, a very serious charge. And each of these charges carry with it significant jail time. The 2071 crime, three years max per document. The 793 Espionage Act, 10 years max per document. And then the USC 1519 destruction alteration, um, that's a 20 years max charge, but serious criminal penalties right well, there. Let me, let me, uh, that was a perfect layout and layup for me. Here we go. You ready? Ready. None of these three statutes that you just identified, none of them require that the documents that were deposited in the office of the president be considered classified, secret, or top secret. None of them. It's enough that the documents what they call, it's an art term of art, deposited or given to or seen by the president or his staff during his time in office. That is enough. They did not charge him with the one they charged Petraeus with and Berger with, which is 19 USC 1924, which is the removal willfully of classified information. That's what, that's what nailed Petraeus. He took eight binders of classified material and he gave it to his mistress who used it to write a book. That's a bad thing. But they had to prove that he knew it was classified. That Sandy Berger, pardon me, knew when he obtained the material that it was classified. They don't have to prove that. So the Republicans can turn blue in the face and go on their head and spit wooden nickels. It doesn't matter whether it's classified. You're, you're arguing, you're barking up the wrong tree. And the thing that's the biggest penalty among these three, as we kind of dovetail with uh, the 14th Amendment Article 3 disqualification clause, and whether it's applicable here, is that, you're going to love the irony of this one, Ben, uh, 18 U.S.C. 2071, which is really the big, bad charge here. They're all bad. Espionage Act for a president is terrible. But 18 U.S.C. 2071, not only did Trump himself increase the penalty from one year to five years in jail, the irony, oh, the irony, but... It has a specific provision that's never been tested in the courts, so particularly the Supreme Court, has a particular provision that says you will be barred from office if you are convicted of violating this statute. If So it has a built-in Article 14 disqualification right into the statute. Now, the open question is, if it's in conflict with Article 14, for what disqualifies a president, is this statute going to survive our supermajority right wing of the Supreme Court? I don't know, but it's built into this statute right here. The other ones, like the Espionage Act, you can back your way into Article 14 and Section 3 of the Disqualification Clause, because if you're giving aid and comfort to the enemy, which, uh, which, which if you're violating the Espionage Act, okay, uh, which uh, we'll put up on the screen what the elements of that are. If you violated the Espionage Act, you've also, by extension, now uh, are barred under the 14th Amendment. So there are people that think, oh, who cares? This isn't the one that I thought he was going to be charged with. Who cares? You know, just as you said at the top of this segment, at the top of the show tonight, Ben, that this was a president that knew new boundaries, that tested and every, every limit, every standard, every checks and balance he saw as a challenge to see what he could get away with like a petulant child 
five years ago, you and I were talking about the academic issue of, I wonder if he violated the emoluments clause when he signed the uh, hotel deal to make everybody that visits him stay at the hotel. Wasn't that like an interesting academic debate about whether he violated? And and he did, Popak, but the difference was at the time he was the president and what was unprecedented was presidents engaged in those type of flagrant crimes in clear and present view with a political party supporting it. That marriage together makes it unprecedented. But my point is, isn't that adorable that we were talking just about? But even then... Days into office, we were talking about first time a president has ever mixed mixed business with politics and leadership and and had that happen in such a blatant transparent way as you said supported by a party now what we're looking at yes everything he's ever done is flouting and in violation of a criminal statute which one finally trips him up since he knows no boundaries he thinks he'll never be caught somebody who thinks they'll never be caught keeps going and robbing banks until one day he walks out and he's surrounded by the marshals and he, on video evidence and holding the bag of, uh, of money. And that's what's happening here. It's not just as we like to joke and Midas like to joke, a terrible, terrible, shitty day and week in Trump world to have your appraiser turn over 35,000 pages of documents about whether there's been loan inflation and appraisal fraud committed. The same week that your, you know, Fawny Willis is going forward with your former lawyer and forcing him to testify in front of the grand jury. The same week that your home, your home is raided. I don't care about the words. A search warrant is executed and top and super top secret material is found and, and you you would learn that you were the target of a criminal investigation. You, you hire your first criminal defense lawyer in the same week in Georgia because you know you're up, you know what's creek. This is, as you said, the chickens coming home to roost and hard against this president and he's still hiring crappy lawyers pardon me he's still hiring lawyers that don't have the pedigree that would get him out of this mess that he's created for himself that's a better way to put it and talk about that briefly popak because the two lawyers i've seen who have been on tv who have just done the worst possible job thankfully for the worst possible person there's always that expression you get the lawyer you deserve and boy does trump get the lawyer he deserves and for all the legal af viewers out there we even told you that the these lawyers who are representing trump uh, alina haba and christina bob is her name they uh they're asked i don't know maybe there's nuclear uh, i'm not really sure if there's nuclear information or not just my understanding that no search warrant was given to us just like lying in the worst way you had a uh, recently alina hoppe said well, the advice that i gave to donald trump is i told him that as long as you don't run for president all of these charges would go away well not you only mean, is she that was just waving stupid, the attorney waving waving attorney the... Client privilege. <laughs> let me tell you how i waive the attorney client privilege you're not allowed to say what the advice you gave to the you know to your client it's a it's oh. the number one ethical violation that there is but they really he really has the worst legal team but no one wants to represent this this horrible criminal you know person he, he he pulled he pulled i don't know where he got him from maybe from his kanye kimye connections but he pulled you probably know him you know in the general world a guy in in atlanta who's a well-known criminal defense lawyer mainly representing rap stars who run afoul of the law 
That's basically his claim to fame, besides the fact that he goes by the handle hashtag billion dollar lawyer. Um, that's his new, but at least it shows a certain modicum of acceptance that Trump, it may be prosecuted in a criminal setting in Georgia. So it's going to be this guy versus Fonny Willis. I think it's the wrong guy because he's a trial lawyer, unless they're planning to go to trial on this, not somebody that's going to get the respect, I think, of Fonny Willis in some sort of negotiated plea, but we'll leave that for another day. This other band of lawyers that he's chosen for the subpoena, but let's just stop for a minute. We've spent the last 20 minutes talking about something remarkable that even our minds can't get around, the, the enormity of it. First time in the history of this republic, a president is the subject of a criminal prosecution. I mean, I can't, it, it's breathless to say these things. Um, and, oh, God, we're still not even there. This isn't even arising out of the January 6th no, grand jury. This is, this Those is charges are still likely to come to. This is just separate other conduct. So, which which he, he, he effed around and found out, as everybody, as everybody likes to say. The, 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 the National Archive had identified months ago the existence of the 15 boxes they knew were missing. You and I speculated at one time, how come the National Archive doesn't know what's out the door? Shouldn't they know? I mean, that's even worse. They knew. They knew from talking to highlight this issue on Illegal AF. And yes. A whole episode on this. At 1,000%. I will have to find the number of that episode. But 1,000%. We talked about this months ago. And they tried to negotiate for the return of the of the boxes. Everyone says, oh, it's unprecedented. I love the Republicans. It's unprecedented for, for a, a raid to be conducted on a president's former house. That's not the focus. The focus is not on that. The focus is on your president, the guy that you support. You're not troubled by 15 boxes of you don't know what going out the door and staying in, an, in a wooden door with a flimsy lock in the basement of Mar-a-Lago. That doesn't trouble you as a patriot of this country? Yeah, no. Because they're not patriots, but no. it goes back to what Donald Trump said when he was first running. He, he said, I could shoot somebody on Fifth, on Fifth Avenue, Avenue, on Fifth Avenue. And, I, right. and I would get away with it. And frankly, it's worse than that. He could likely give our nuclear secrets to foreign adversaries and keep that in his home in Mar-a-Lago. And the right-wing radical extremists will support that because we need to realize everything with the right wing is projection. So when he refers to his enemies as enemies of the people, that is who the radical right-wing extremists are. I'm glad it's being exposed. But Popak, one of the ways you expose it, though, is that you just keep on pushing. You do not give up. And that's what really got me super upset. And we'll talk about Alvin Bragg is still doing some good work. I mean, they are prosecuting the Trump organization. They are prosecuting Weisselberg. We'll talk about that in a little bit. And they did win their motion to dismiss there. But look at what happened with Tish James, constantly fighting. Trump's not turning over records. Judge, I want you to hold him in contempt. Um, judge, he's not a, showing up for his deposition. Okay, he'll appeal. We'll fight this. I'm not giving up because his arguments are bad faith, and he's going to lose if you just keep on fighting. And then she finally got to the point where after all of his excuses, including him using the death of his first wife, who he buried in the back lot of his golf course in a mound of dirt. In the Which you thought I was kidding about when I told you what episode. You thought I was just, Popak made that up. 
I, did. I thought it was a fake photo. I was like, how could this possibly be? Uh, this is the most disgusting thing I've, I've ever possibly have seen. But Tish James kept on pushing. Trump used that as an excuse to delay his deposition. Then he uses that. Then he goes to Arizona and holds these absurd fascist circus rallies that he holds there. But she said, show up, show up, show up. Don Jr. and Ivanka had their depositions taken. They didn't plead the fifth. Remember, Eric pled the fifth um, when he had his deposition. Well, let's get the context before you move on. Weisselberg and Eric Trump were the first to go in. They went in months ago. They did the same thing Trump did. They both invoked. It's interesting. Eric Trump and Weisselberg, who's now, we'll talk about it next, the subject of a criminal prosecution that will go to trial for tax evasion and conspiracy of tax evasion and his own personal tax evasion, 500 times he put up the Fifth Amendment, as did Eric Trump. Of course, we're going to talk about the context of what it all means in a civil investigation. One, I'll remind everybody, Tish James has not yet filed her investigative document. People think, oh, she's already, like, charged him. First of all, it's a civil investigation. It would be a lawsuit, a complaint, a civil complaint that would be filed. She's not yet filed it. Talk about keeping your powder dry and the patience of the professionalism of the lawyers that you and I are going to talk about today and in other days, contrasted with the, the nuttiness and the, the unmoored professional behavior of Trump world. You're watching... You know, this is like a locomotive that can't be stopped in the form, in this case, Tish James, Bonnie Willis, Merrick Garland. You're watching professionalism at its greatest. She could have brought this complaint, filed this complaint months ago, months ago, and not waited for this. She's doing it exactly on time and exactly right. And I want to remind people, she hasn't filed that suit yet. That's what I want, Popak, and my leaders. I want professionals. I want competence. I don't want this airtight. I don't want this clown show weirdness when it comes to this is life, people. This is life. This isn't, you know, you know, the, the radical right to me. Why we call them a death cult is because I don't think they truly appreciate the value of, of, of life. I mean, they will they will give their, their life in the hands of people who are literally killing them each and every day. But I digress. So fifth, fifth, fifth. Donald Trump takes the Fifth Amendment four. Well, let's talk about what it means. And let's talk about what it times. means. Tish James yeah. is actually in the room in New York in the deposition that she finally secured to take place. And in a civil investigation and in a civil case, unlike a criminal case, by someone pleading the fifth, it creates what's called an adverse inference against the party that's pleading the fifth. And an adverse inference is what it sounds. It is an inference that the jury can make that the information that the person is refusing to answer is adverse, that it would be bad if they answered the question. So you can go in front of a jury in a civil case, not a criminal case, in a civil case only when someone pleads the fifth and say, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, that individual took the fifth when I asked them, did you do this? And by not responding, you should infer that they did in fact do that. You absolutely can do that under your Fifth Amendment rights well, that, in a criminal case, but in a civil, you can. Michael Pope. That, that's how O.J. got convicted of, of for the killing and the murder of his ex-wife. Because they said to him, O.J., did you kill her? And he said, Fifth Amendment. 
in the so civil case, that's how he was found yeah. liable. And, and you're right. And in the civil case, they said, you know, that's basically the equivalent of he did it. Now, so now let me unpack what you just said for and catch up everybody in legal AF law school. Why did Tish James ask 440 questions or so, knowing that in response to each, or desiring that in response to each, there'd be an answer of Fifth Amendment? That's on purpose. And you load up. I've had this happen where I knew the other person was going to have to take the Fifth Amendment. So I loaded up all of my questions with things that I knew they were going to have to. They were going to take the Fifth and it was going to be to my advantage and disadvantage them in the civil case. So she very methodically worked out 400 questions, knowing that he was never going to answer one. Or at least knowing that if he went that route, because she didn't know exactly what he was going to do on the way in, although I'm sure her office had discussions with Robert Costello, the lawyer for Trump, about these issues. But so, so she's like, all right, you're going to go that way? All right, fine. I'm going to go plan B, which I'm now going to ask you, you committed tax fraud, didn't you? Uh, Fifth Amendment. You, you loan inflated all of your properties. You raised the value in order to get higher loans and then deflated them for tax purposes, didn't you, sir? Fifth Amendment. Now what happens? And, and, and 398 more questions like that. Now she takes that with a, with a ribbon around it and she gets what's called a jury instruction at the appropriate time. Not grand jury. She's, not, she's civil. But she's sitting in front of her jury and doing her closing argument. They will have already worked out with the judge the instructions to the jury to apply to the case to find if he's violated whatever civil statute that she's going to bring her case under or file her case under. And so... They will be told, now let's talk about adverse inference. And there is a New York State model jury instruction. They may modify it a little bit that the judge is going to give to the jury. When when the, the defendant in the case or a party in the case takes the Fifth Amendment, that you are to give that an adverse inference meaning. And, you, and the judge actually instructs the jury of how much weight and how they're supposed to give weight to that particular event in the case in evaluating their evidence as the trier of fact. And so that's why that answers the question, why did she ask so many questions? Not just say, okay, well, he's not going to answer it. No, you load up. It's the opposite. It's counterintuitive. You load up on the questions knowing you're going to get the Fifth Amendment, and then you work to get the right instruction at the time of trial. So the jury, of course, knows that the Fifth Amendment is really, really, really important in the civil context in a way that in the criminal it never is. Yeah, you know, and strategically, there are sometimes as just kind of a practice, practical tip. When the case is a little bit more simple, like, you know, I'll do some catastrophic car accident cases where, you know, and I have a case right now, for example, where uh, an individual who was driving a truck um, was drinking and driving for a large corporation. They were drinking and driving and they're going to plead the fifth. When, when they're deposed. I'll speak with the lawyer um, in that case. And because it involves one discrete event, were they drunk while they were driving and was there an accident? I could just get a written stipulation to say, I'm gonna plead the fifth on any question that you ask me because it's a discrete issue. But certainly in a case like this with Trump where there's multiple properties, multiple issues, multiple sub issues that oh, form yeah. the elements of the civil claim, you absolutely wanna hit each element because what you set yourself up to do very quickly is when you file the lawsuit, which let me be clear, Tish James is going to file yeah. the lawsuit. Yeah, I wasn't suggesting she's not going to. I just said she hadn't yet. <laughs> um, she will file very quickly 
a motion for summary judgment uh, to the judge and say, judge, this case doesn't even have to go further. It doesn't even need to go in front of a jury because there is no By advertising on YouTube, I grow my business by reaching my most important customers, people like Allison. She's a fashionista who's passionate about shopping and lives in my city. I found my customers on YouTube. Get started with YouTube advertising. The top expert on extremism exposes NRA and GOP plan to radicalize America, the weekend show, three days ago. Sunday, August 21, 2022. Welcome to the 27th episode in this series from Midas Touch and 5-Minute News called The Weekend Show, where we take a deep dive into the news of the week. Subscribe to the show as audio in addition to my daily 5-Minute News podcast on iTunes or wherever you get yours. Joining me today is Ryan Bussey, a reformed firearms executive who formerly helped build one of the world's most iconic gun companies, but quit and authored the book Gunfight, My Battle Against the industry that radicalized America. He now serves as a senior policy advisor to the gun safety advocacy group Giffords. Ryan, thank you for joining us on the weekend show. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me here today. So this uh, is, it's always an interesting conversation for me to talk about firearms because I'm from the UK where we don't have any. And uh, uh, if our police don't have any, you know, we have firearms units that show up if they're needed. We don't have school shootings. We don't have hardly any gun crime we do have a knife problem i give you that but uh you know so culturally this is always an indication for me and so you're a kind of you know expert witness in this case just tell us a little bit about why you flipped well i don't um i'm not so sure that i flipped i think that uh, the changing culture of our nation changed around me more so than i change and i live this is a common refrain with uh with, with people such as myself, but I grew up on a rural farm and ranch where guns were a very important part of our culture and our life, um, and so was responsibility. I got into the firearms industry much like a kid who plays uh, baseball and perhaps soccer in your case, and, you know, makes the major leagues or um, finds himself in Wembley. But um, you know, I, I, I uh, for me, it was a it was. You know, it was a dream come true in, in large part and for the first part of my career um, those those sorts of dreams and sort of responsibility i grew up with were integral in the industry but that changed radically really starting in the early to mid 2000s and then to where we are now and so what was it that, that made the change for you did, did something happen politically or, or was there a, a shooting event what was this what was the story well, there was, I look back at it now um, and realize it was it was more a series of things that happened at the time. I thought it was a singular event. I stood up for wild places and conservation in um, some of our last iconic American wild places like the Rome Plateau in Colorado, the Val Vidal in New Mexico, and then my sacred place, the Badger Two Medicine in Montana that were set to be drilled and industrialized by the Bush-Cheney Energy Plan in 2004. When I did that, the industry that claimed to be for hunters and tradition and all the things that I had grown up with 
really viciously attacked me because I dared criticize the wrong party, even though I was an up-and-coming award-winning executive. And I realized then that the bill of goods that I had been sold and all Americans had been sold about this tradition and culture and all the things that the industry said it was for was really just a lie. And it was becoming a partisan, you know, moneyed political machine that was all about power and money, not about the things, not about the products that it was selling. And so at the time, that 2004 uh, speech at the National Press Club where I stood up and criticized, that for me, that was a precipitating event. I look back now and realize it was a longer, longer form so sort of process than that, but that's what I thought in of. The NRA. Uh, this subject is um, polarizing only really for a certain group, isn't it? I mean, most uh, sound, civilized people know that there is a major gun problem in the U.S., and... and the likes of Wayne LaPierre, who still runs the NRA and has done since 1991, have a very different view of America and a, a very different view of, of gun ownership. Can you just explain really what those two sides look like? for a small subset of Americans. On the other hand, I contend in my book, and I believe that this sort of all or nothing, um, kind of hell no extremism that was fostered and developed and grown and then handed off by the NRA to our country is not just relevant to a small subset of Americans because that hell no extremist radicalized culture now infects every single thing about United States politics and policy, climate policy reproductive rights, even local school boards, right? They're all now infected by this all-or-nothing radicalization. But to your point, it has roots in a subset of American politics, meaning the gun, the gun culture subset of politics. And unlike England or other countries, we have a specific constitutional amendment specifically dealing with um, the gun issue. That has that and the culture that I described to you growing up, you know, hunting and shooting with my father, these sorts of cultural connections that so many Americans feel. When you throw that and authoritarian politics and 20 years of war and um, everything that is American politics into this soup, it, it's now radicalized everything. And, and um, I think it's important to note that nothing changes the political equation, nothing, either in the macro or the micro sense like the presence of guns. If you think about it in your own personal setting, if you're at a dinner table with a few of your friends and you're having a conversation waiting on the, another friend to show up, you can have spirited conversation, maybe wine, who knows, political debates. But if that last person shows up and that person has a loaded AR-15 on their chest, right, the, everything changes instantly. The party's right? over. The, 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 well, the, the, the power equation is completely yeah. upended. Their opinion is the only one that matters. And, and in a macro sense, that's what authoritarian, armed authoritarians are doing to our democracy, right? When they show up with arms or the threat of arms, the sort of the, the equation changes immediately. And so both in a, a sense of your daily life with just individual people and then in our larger civil societal sense, um, guns really have, have a unique role in that they can sort of upend the, the power equation instantly, unlike anything else that you can think of. And we've seen evidence of that recently. 
January 6th. Carl Rittenhouse, yes. these, these types of yes. events where it's like, you know, grab, grab the weapon. And I, I'm very interested in this kind of machismo aspect to this, which goes back to childhood. And I, this is what we don't have in the UK, obviously. We, don't, we go with our dads to fish, <laughs> right? But we mm-hmm. don't go to shoot. Um, what is it about, and, and I would just also say that all the shootings that I am aware of, certainly school shootings, are committed by men, not by women. And, and women That's tend correct. not to play a part in this uh, in this um, crime uh, in any great way. So just talk to me a little bit about that relationship between a child and their father growing up in America and how a child is indoctrinated into thinking that a, a gun is anything other than a, a dangerous weapon. Well, so I, I, I try in my book and in my speeches, which I, I gave one yesterday, I, I try to... Uh, Put some color on this, right? If you're an, if you're a young American boy who receives a rifle or is or shoots with his father, as I did, when that gun enters your hand, there is this sort of American swagger that sort of courses through you, right? All of a sudden, you're the master of your destiny. When I had my little rifle as a kid growing up, which I did, I could be a llama or a hunter. I could provide food. The point was that the power equation changed quickly, and I think to be the sheriff, there is, I could be the sheriff, right? And certainly in my own mind, which really, when you have a gun in your hand, that's really all that matters. And um, I think that is uniquely American. And for those of you who observe now or here, but observe from the outside looking in, there is this... Um, in some ways, it can be alluring. This American sort of John Wayne swagger taken too far, and it can ver- and it can easily jump over the line where it's taken too far, um, where responsibility is dismissed. You know, these sorts of rights. I I contend it's a massive, massive right to, to be able to own and um, obtain firearms. It requires a massive responsibility that goes along with it. Right now, our, that balance for Americans is way out of whack because, as you note. Now, American males, largely young American males, um, are trying to fix their machismo problems, their man problems, their whatever, by running out and becoming an instant tactical badass, which is what we allow them to be because we give them the weapons of war. They can purchase them on their 18th birthday and as many 30-round magazines as they want, which the Uvalde shooter actually did exactly that. Um, It started, and and, and part of this is because the industry actively, aggressively markets to this segment. They create this customer. Um, In 2010 and 12, the famous now man car campaign from Bushmaster, which was owned by Remington and AR-15 Company, literally said, you get your man card, this thing gives you the rights to not be questioned if you buy this gun, and if you don't have this gun, you're not a man, you don't have the man card. It was a literal, physical card that you got in the mail. That man card rifle was used by a 19-year-old kid in a school called Sandy Hook. So, you can see how this... So the marketing of firearms, it's a bit like the meat industry, isn't it? You know, you eat a steak and it makes you strong. You're a, you're a man. And, you know, yeah. there's been a whole thing with the meat lobby. Um, and I suppose the kind of wokeness that is being fought against, wokeness is probably pushing back against machismo men with their guns. Oh. As a... To give you an example. Yes, and so now we have this whole societal battle, and it's this, I like to say now, it's a storm creating its own weather for 
every bit of wellness that pushes back against us. You have an ever-stiffening backbone of the machismo crowd, the marketing crowd, the Kyle Rittenhouse saying hell no to Antifa crowd to all go down and be a man's man and shoot people at a, pro- at a Black Lives Matter protest or Antifa protest, right? It just keeps... It, 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 it's like a cycle. We're just pumping heat and moisture into it, and it just keeps spinning and spinning and growing and growing. And if we don't stop it, it takes, um, I, I fear that our, we think we've had ugly days. I, I don't think our days, uh, I don't think those are over. Let's just talk about the, um, you know, the Bill of Rights and why it is that gun owners and, you know, far-right Republicans, they talk about their right to own a weapon, but in the Constitution it doesn't talk about uh, a semi-automatic weapon, does it? It's probably referencing a, it's probably referencing a, a musket that can shoot a, a, a single shot. So, so how do you qualify that argument that says when people say, "Well, it's my constitutional right"? Well, we have, con- we do have a constitutional right to own guns. The Constitution does not provide. Um, you know, for unfettered, any sort of unfettered right, it has to be balanced um, with responsibility and with regulations. And I think that any reasonable person in America understands that we're currently and have been in a debate about what constitutional rights are, where they stop, where they start, how broad they are, how narrow they are. Um, I guess that's been going on since we had our Bill of Rights, but it seems to have been ratcheted up here you know, to the extreme form recently. And I think we're wrestling with the implications of that as a nation. Different states have different laws on firearms. And uh, the open carry law enables people to show off that kind of machismo, gun-toting attitude. Um, do you think that there's going to come a time... I mean, I, I'm starting to feel it, but I'm interested in, in your view... Uh, we've recently, off the back of the search of Mar-a-Lago, heard uh, a lot of Trump supporters saying that, you know, the next time we fight, it won't be with flag. That there will be a kind of civil war between states, states that enable people to, you know, proudly carry their guns. We've seen kind of militia standing outside FBI buildings and, and protesting with their, with their semi-automatic weapons. What, what are the what are the what's the likelihood that politics is going to drive kind of warfare on the ground? I don't want to you know I don't want to dramatize this, but I recognize that we're already starting to see this in some places. I don't think your uh, dramatization is in any way hyperbolic. To be honest with you, I think that the country now is uh, teetering on a precipice. I. Um, Look, many hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of these customers who have purchased AR-15s, largely AR-15s, other guns too, but much of it, let's face it, much of it is centered around the guns for the AR-15. They have purchased this gun, or, or many of them, and perhaps truckloads of 30-round magazines and all the ammunition that they have, with the very thought, if not dream, of someday using those weapons to overthrow a tyrannical government. Go ask them. They'll say it. They're very forthright about it, right? Um, I own this. I must own this as my patriotic duty because I may have to overthrow a government that I disagree because with. Because it says that in the uh, Constitution. So that's how they've translated the, those kind of... They've re- well, no, that's not, that, that's not actually in the Constitution, but there is, you know, there are, there were founding father documents to, you know, the Thomas Jefferson, um, 
you know, the blood or, uh, witnessing or referencing that um, every once in a while you need a good revolution. Um, so, um, and so many of these people have taken that to mean that they should do the patriotic duty. They should stand by. They should almost wish, if not hope, for a bloody civil war. And the firearms industry has tapped into that, especially for the last 15 years. And when many of these guns are sold, they're sold with that specific purpose in mind. And sometimes they come with little snippets of the Constitution in the packaging. Um, in other words, we're telling these people to be good, patriotic Americans. They must be ready to do this. And so when um, something happens with Donald Trump or something happens that they perceive to be a precipitating event, um, January 6th, for instance, I don't think that we should find it surprising that a certain subset of them want to rush out and play hero. I don't. I wasn't surprised when Kyle Rittenhouse walked down on the streets of uh, Kenosha to kill people. You're marketing this to these people, like, and marketing works. Let's just talk about the number of guns in circulation. I, I read, I can't remember, but you can correct me, that there were literally millions of these semi-automatic weapons that had already been sold. Is that right? I mean, how, how many of these types of uh, weapons of war are, are currently owned by civilians. So first off, I'll, I'll, I'll give you some data points here. Um, anybody who's been to the United States or driven through any of our cities knows how chock full our streets and highways can be. Um, just drive outside of LA any given time and you would swear the number of cars, like there's, there's fewer stars in the sky, right, than there are a number of cars in the United States. Well, there's two, about 280 million cars, registered vehicles in the United States, 280 million. Um, there are approximately 410 million firearms in the United States. Of those, there are somewhere, and I'll get to why this is debatable, but there's somewhere between 20 and 40 million AR-15, AK-47, assault weapon types. 20 and 40 million. Um, that's about one for every eight or nine uh, people in the United States. The 400 and some million is about 1.2 guns for every single person in the United States. Um, that's a lot of guns, right? It's important to note that up until 2005 or six, there were virtually no assault weapons or AR-15s in the United States. There were some. I mean, perhaps 30, 40, 50, maybe on a big year, 60,000 of those things were sold in the United States each year. Today, in 2020, there were about four and a half million AR-15s and AR-15 variants sold in a single year. That's 12,000 per day. 12,000 per day. So even if you were to do an all-out semi-automatic weapons ban, that would be a ban from buying them, wouldn't it? I mean, it wouldn't change school shootings. It wouldn't limit the number of, of massacres that happen because the guns are already in possession of the people that might one day use them. I think a lot of them have already been sold, traffic stealing. They go to Mexico and sell them there. Yeah, you have 40, let's say we have 40 million of them, which I don't think. And by the way, the reason that this is debatable, the reason I say between 25 and 40 million, the United States does not measure this. There are no official statistics. I mean, we, 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 know, <laughs> we know more about how many Nike tennis shoes are sold every day than we do about how many AR-15s are sold every day, right? Um, it's, it's craziness. So it's somewhat debatable, but it's a lot. It's in the tens of millions. There's no, there's no debating that. And to your point about a ban, yes. Um, that's why this talk of ban is so complex and, in my mind, sort of misses the mark. The mark is that we have this um, over-cultural problem. We, we have 
it, it, we have a culture that glorifies this, that wishes for war, that um, that, that, that tells well, we these troubled a, young men a, that they can solve a their president problems. President who's like calling for civil war. war. And um, I, I, I don't know An how president fixes any of that. There was a, uh, a, a ban of sorts, wasn't there? Was it under Clinton and then it was put back by Bush? Am I, am I right there? Yeah, so we had what we called, it was actually, it's referred to as the assault weapons ban. It went into effect on September 13th, 1994. Um, was signed by Bill Clinton in the Rose Garden on that day. James Brady, who was, um, who was President Reagan's press secretary, was beside him. Um, there were, and, and by the way, President Reagan, the iconic iconic conservative hero of the entire GOP nation, right, wrote a letter to the Congress, to every single member of Congress, where he begged for that assault weapons ban to be passed. And it was, uh, barely, but it was. And it was signed into law September 13th, 1994. On September 13th, 2004, George W. Bush opted not to renew that ban. What is notable about that, though, is that uh, assault weapons technically were banned, but, but the definition of assault weapon is a slippery thing. AR-15s themselves were not banned without law. You could buy millions of them. The country could, the industry could have sold millions of them and built millions of them. They didn't. An assault weapon was defined, as example, as like an AR-15, but with additional features that made it an assault weapon. So if you add a flash suppressor to it, or you add a folding stock to it, right, you add a B-52 